Howdy do da day da do, and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Alexandra Sophocles, who is the assistant faculty violist at Stringwood Chamber Music Festival, administrative assistant at the EMILY program, and a current student at St. Mary's University of Minnesota for counseling psychology. And we'll be talking about the health at every size movement, body positivity, and fat liberation. Welcome, Carol. Thanks for being here. Hiya, toots! <laughs> We have so many little nicknames for each other. I was coming up with even more nicknames than the ones that we were just talking about, which were (laughs) Carol and Toots, which stem from the same family tree, which is, this isn't really my story about you, but is it okay if I explain the genesis of Carol? Sure. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So Alexandra's middle name is Carol. And at Stringwood, where we met about a year, it's actually a little over a year ago now. But I have to save that story when I first met you. But we started to actually get to know each other more closely at Stringwood last summer 2019. And as an assistant faculty there, you have to put your phone number on the board so that any student could potentially call you if they needed you at any moment. It's a safety precaution, that sort of thing, right? So there's one day that Matt Lammers decided that instead of putting down your first names, you'd put down your middle names to see which students could guess which middle names corresponded with the correct assistant faculty member. Is that right? Yeah, we wanted to see how long it would take for them to notice that our first names weren't on there and to see even like, who's Carol? Wait, who's Swanky? It took them a while. They did not notice it for a good long while, the students. But then when they found out that my middle name was Carol, and because my name, my first name and my last name are like very Greek, Alexander Sophocles, the juxtaposition of Carol, which is my grandmother's name on my mom's side, the non-Greek side, they were like, wait, your, your middle name's Carol? That's so different. And so Matt started calling me Carol. And And then we did. We kind of created this persona of who Carol might be. And I don't know where I came up with this or where we came up with this, but it ended up being kind of this, I don't know, like someone from the 1930s and 40s, this business-oriented woman who would say, hiya, toots. (laughs) Actually, toots was partially inspired by, okay, so I used to work at Lane Bryant as a sales associate, and one of our managers, she's the best, she would call us toots and kiddo. She'd be like, hiya, toots. (laughs) Where I got it from, it was inspired by one of my old bosses. This is something Carol would say. And so, yeah, that was part of the personality of this alter ego of mine, Carol. Yes, I probably call you Carol more times than I call you Alexandra. And I hope it's okay that I call you that. Of course it's okay. There's four people in the entire world that I will allow to call me Carol. And that's you and then the other Stringwood assistant faculty, Lucas, <laughs> Autumn, and Matt. So this one time the students called me Carol and I went, no. <laughs> Never! Why not? Do you call me Alexandra? Alexandra. <laughs> well, I should mention, I've collected the final member of the current assistant faculty of Stringwood. Yeah. I'm so honored. I mean, of course, there's more past assistant faculty members that I would love to have on the podcast to talk about their experiences as well. <laughs> Another nickname for you that I don't use as often because I only use it when it's appropriate, but that nickname is Clutch. Yes, yes, Clutch. Yes, and that more or less stems from the first time we actually met, which was actually kind of a unique situation. It's the quintessential story that your teachers prepare you for as sort of the worst case scenario, a backup that you have to be prepared for everything at all times. And you've had to do this probably more times than you should. (laughs) But two summers ago, not last summer, but the summer before that, the quartet and I, the Ataria String Quartet and I, we were going to drive up to Duluth to perform Schulhoff's Quartet Concerto for Wind and Brass Ensemble, which I've never heard this piece until the piece fell into my hands. It's actually kind of cool. So check it out on the Spotify playlist. You can find the playlist in each description of every episode. But we were driving up a couple days before the concert. We get this text message from our violist, Anna Lee, and she basically says that she's in the hospital and she's dealing with sepsis. It's a whole long story, but she was basically hospitalized and she couldn't make the concert. So the rest of the quartet and I were kind of scrambling to find a violist to play this concert with us in a very, very short amount of time. Mind you, this piece is not very standard, so not many people have already played it before. It's also difficult to find someone to join your group and just mesh in and also be a soloist with us. So it's a lot to ask of someone. So we are calling Minnesota Orchestra members, we are calling SPCO, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra members, and it just so happened that that particular weekend, all of them were just completely booked. So we just kept going down the list of people we knew. 
new. And I didn't know you at the time, but Ray and Nancy, my violinist of my quartet, did know you and knew that you had graduated recently from Oberlin Conservatory. And so they said, you have to call... Oh, I almost called you Carol. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, Carol! No, no, we had to call Alexandra. She would be perfect. You're fresh out of music school, so you are really primed to just pick something up really last minute and just play the bejesus out of it. <laughs> and they trusted you. I mean, they knew your playing since you were in middle school from the Artaria Chamber Music School. So it was just something that made sense with the short amount of time that we had. So basically, you were actually still working. So you had to finish a shift and then drive up to Duluth somehow miraculously learn your part and then rehearse with us. And then a day later, we performed the piece. It's just nuts. You know, these are the stories that our teachers tell us about how to be prepared for any given scenario. And this is just the classic situation of, you know, a soloist not being able to show up because of health reasons and someone stepping in in the last second to be clutch. I mean, this is how some careers are even made. You know about the story about Gil Shaham, right? No, I don't. Oh, okay. So basically, Gil Shaham replaced Itzhak Perlman for a concert with Michael Tilson Thomas and the London Symphony Orchestra. I believe it was a really last minute situation. And that basically kind of put him in the public eye of this amazing, you know, now he's this illustrious soloist, violinist, and just an amazing human being. But it's those kinds of stories that our teachers tell us, you know, you have to have the five major concertos in your back pocket at all times in the event that this might happen. And so you were clutch for us in that moment. And then at Stringwood the following year, we had to replace a violist in a student group performing Gina Starr's first string quartet. And I believe you've never performed it. And you were just clutch. You sat down and you played the piece. It's like your superpower or something. And I suppose it's an unspoken possibility for assistant faculty members to sit in in the event that a student isn't able to perform with their group. Yeah, I think that happened once when I was a student at Stringwood as a similar situation. It was intense, but I always actually I'd always wanted to play that movement of that piece. So I was also kind of like, oh, cool. I finally like get to play this quartet. But you had less than 24 hours to learn that movement, right? It was terrifying, but I did it. And uh, I love those students. So yeah. It's all for them, right? Oh, gosh. It is all for them. It's pretty great. Yeah. And they all work really hard, and we're really proud of what they accomplish at Stringwood. Yeah. Yay, students. 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 (laughs) (laughs) The other thing is, basically, you met me when I was in a really vulnerable state, and I'm totally indebted to you and your friendship. And even when Stringwood ended, I asked if we could keep hanging out. And I'm so happy we have. I was like, yes, a friend (laughs) that I really like. (laughs) Do you have a story about me? Oh, is this? Yes, this is the time. I do have a story about you. So one time you came over and you cooked at my apartment. And did I wash your dishes? (laughs) You always insist on washing my dishes. You never let me wash your dishes. But that's that's for another time for us to flush that one out. (laughs) Um, So... You were cooking and you teased me for the small size of my soy sauce. You were like, that's nothing. I have a much bigger bottle. Like you should get more soy sauce. And I was like, okay, okay. So I like told my mom, I was like, oh, it was really fun. Patty came over and she teased me for like the lack of soy sauce I had. I mean, I don't really know how many fluid ounces were in that small container. It's the standard one I grew up using. It was like 12 (laughs) ounces or something like that. And so I told my mom just kind of anecdotally. So my mom's a piano teacher. And for some reason, this topic came up when she was talking to one of her students' parents. And her students' parents brought over like a half gallon's worth of soy sauce. That is the appropriate amount of soy sauce. (laughs) (laughs) They gave to give to me. They were like, this is for your daughter. She can keep this in her. Basically, your mom's students' parents, they were on my side. They were like, oh my God, this is a crisis. We have to remedy this right now. Here's a gift of soy sauce. And so I still have that. It's great, isn't it? It's such a staple in Asian cuisine. I mean, I have one in my refrigerator as well. <laughs> I like Snapchatted you or like texted you. I was like, Patty, look at the size of this thing. And you were like, yeah, that's the one I keep. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I was like, it's huge. <laughs> it will serve you well. It will. And when I, um, so my sister and I just moved into a new apartment and she saw that because I still have it. I'm not finished with it. She was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, sauce. And she was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, we won't need to get that for a while. (laughs) 
By the way, Alexandra's younger sister, Lenny Sophocles, is the artist behind Hiding Behind the Music Stands logo, and I am just in love with it. Thank you, Lenny. Shout out to her. And it's also just so great to have this community of friends and family. She's a talented one. Indeed. Can we talk about Watson? Watson! So Watson is my family's dog. He is a Westie. He's the love of my life. Yeah. He has such a personality. We call him a dingus. <laughs> just like, he's like the perfect balance of like weird and loving and oh, he's such a cutie pie. I love him. Yeah. Okay. Spitfire questions. Okay, let's do this. Mozart or Beethoven? Mozart. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to be your answer. You didn't? No, but can I ask why? Mozart operas. I love Beethoven, but for me, there are a few things as amazing as a Mozart opera. Like, I listened to Marriage of Figaro recently. Oh, it's so good. You're not wrong. I mean, there's really no wrong answer. Okay, Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Shostakovich. That is definitely the Artaria String Quartet influence. Yes, that is 100% their influence. <laughs> I must say, I have not met anyone else who has loved Shostakovich String Quartets more than my quartet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, before you were in the group, they did the full Shostakovich quartet cycle. That's right. And it was the coolest thing ever. I think I went to like almost every concert and mm-hmm. it was just like my favorite. Yeah, I wish I could have been in the group then. Anyway, Netflix or video games? Netflix. Basil or cilantro? You're going to hate me, Basil. I know, but that makes sense because it's regional. I'm starting to think that this question is more about the region of your favorite cuisines versus the actual herbs themselves. You don't really find basil in Greek food, but it is kind of like that Mediterranean. Yeah, well, that's what I, yeah. Yeah. And I do love basil too. I mean, I have some growing, but the cuisines I grew up with were mainly Asian and Mexican, and both of those use a lot of cilantro. So I think that's where my love for cilantro stemmed from. But I know that there is a gene that makes cilantro taste like soap to people, and I feel sorry for those people. (laughs) But anyway, Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? Oh my goodness, Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I feel like I have to have a moment of silence now, because whenever that happens, I just feel like, why does she gotta be that way? No, she leaned into it. Instead of being like, I'm sorry for the things I said, she was like, no, this is why I'm right. And we're all like, no, you're not right. Stop it. Like, no one's perfect. Try to separate her from the books. Please. (laughs) Symphony or chamber music? Chamber music. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite practice room? Where did I like to practice? I always liked a corner room. In general or at a particular building? The practice room building at Oberlin, where I went to school. Okay. It's like a big tower. It's like three floors, but it's basically like a box. There's four hallways and there's like a patio in the middle of it. And so like there's a bunch of corner rooms. And if I got a corner room, I really liked it because it was like the right size. I could breathe in the space, but it wasn't like so big that I thought a pianist was going to get mad at me for taking it. Okay, nice. Favorite professor shout out? Nancy. Nancy's not my professor, but... Well, you know, mentor. So Alexandra is talking about Nancy Oliveros, who is the second violinist in my string quartet and was her coach in high school. Yeah, she was... I think Nancy is like one of the most important musical mentors. She was never my private instructor because I play viola and she plays violin. But she's been a mentor and big presence in my life since I was 13. So like 11 years. And she really transformed my view of music. So I've had other amazing teachers, like my college professor, Peter Slowick, amazing, Um, my high school teacher, Richard Marshall, and like even, you know, I've had amazing teachers, but Nancy has been around the longest, Mm -hmm. I would say, as a presence in my life, musically and personally. Yeah, she's pretty special. She's the best. (laughs) Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Yeah, I think Stevie Wonder. That's a good one. Yeah, I've listened to his music since I was a kid. And he just has that amazing trifecta of being like an amazing songwriter and singer and performer. His voice has that perfect balance of like being objectively beautiful, but also expressive. And his music is so good. Can I just quickly ask, what is your favorite Stevie Wonder song? Depends on the mood. I love um, For Once in My Life. Oh, 
right? One of the best. It really is. I also love Summer Soft from Songs in the Key of Life. That whole album. But Summer mm-hmm. Soft is like when I want to feel more chill. And then My Sharia Moore. That's a classic. Most transformative performance experience? Okay, this is a bit of an unconventional one. But when I was in high school studying under Artaria, I was in a quartet we called the Luna String Quartet. So classical NPR has this youth competition called Minnesota Varsity. And the people that will get to the performance round get to play in a live radio show at the Fitzgerald Theater. It's where they used to record Prairie Home Companion. Where is that again? St. Paul. Oh, okay. And so we made it to that round and we got to perform live and they also had a voting so people could vote for their favorite recording that they posted. They didn't announce it until like the concert, but they told us to prepare something that if we were chosen as the fan favorite to have something to play. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up picking like, we were like, why not? So we picked a quartet version of Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh my God. Awesome. And it was so fun. I got that from my high school music teacher. It was one of my favorite things. And we we're like, why not? We we're like, we're probably not going to get it anyways. But we did. They announced yeah. our name and we were like, what? So we got to play Bohemian Rhapsody on classical NPR. It was one of my favorite things because it was like the first time I performed viola in a non-classical context. Right. And it was You're- just such a blast. I just really felt like a music to enjoy the music and it wasn't like a competition thing. It just was such a cool thing. That's really awesome. It's like you're transcending the boundaries of what classical music is to people. It's totally a piece that you would do for that sort of thing because it's not like in the standard repertoire so you wouldn't like submit it for a competition but like you could perform it for fun. Absolutely. All right. Next piece you'd like to learn? Okay, so one piece I've been really wanting to play, there's a transcription of movements from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet for solo, viola, and piano, and it's so good. That sounds like it would be difficult. Yes, it is. That's why it's like something I would like to play, and I would only play like, you can kind of choose, like there's a bunch of different movements, and people don't play all of them. Like Lawrence Power has a really good set of the suite. It's like five movements, and they're really well-rounded, and it's got the stuff you really know, and then a couple of other things in there and it's just the coolest arrangement and i really want to play it nice i'll add it to the spotify playlist all right high five you did it Woo! <laughs> i did the spitfire questions you in did spitfiery way oh no one does and i don't know why i call them spitfire questions because they end up being tangent i guess i should just call them tangential questions <laughs> Spitfire questions is catchier, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. People will be like, what do you love most about hiding behind the music stand? They'll be like, the tangential question. (laughs) (laughs) Not a selling point. The best segment, (laughs) the tangential question. Right. (laughs) Okay, but it's time now for you to talk about your viola journey and also your life journey. Like, where has viola taken you and where are you now? Yeah, okay. So... Like many violists, I started on the violin. I know, I know, I'm ashamed too. No, I'm not. I'm not ashamed. You know, I wonder what the percentage is of people who start on viola first. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. So when I was a kid, I vividly remember my mom would read a picture book to me called Zin Zin Violin. And it was just a kind of a, a look at all the various instruments. And I later learned that my mom always wanted me to learn a string instrument because they're the hardest to play in her opinion, which like don't disagree. Props. Thank you. <laughs> Although piano is difficult too. She's a pianist. She's like, yeah, but I was drawn to the violin because in the book, the violin is on the cover. The violin is the star of the show. I know, classic me, right? (laughs) No, I'm more like rolling my eyes because that's the obvious choice. Called Zin Zin Violin, Patty. They could have called it Chin Chin Cello. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to... There is a cello in that one. I will find the book and see what they used for cello. Or bin bin bass. I don't know. <laughs> they don't even put a viola or bass in it. So <laughs> I was drawn to the violin because like they were the star of the show. And I was like, I want that to be me. And so I learned violin. I had a couple of teachers throughout my early violin years. And then when I was 11, I started with a new teacher, Mr. Brad Johnson, who was actually also one teacher of Matthew Lammers. <gasps> I did not know that. Although I probably should have known that because he was on the podcast. (laughs) He didn't remember that we were in the same studio for a year, but it's fine. (laughs) And if you don't know who Matt Lammers is, go check out episode six entitled Matt Lammers. Are you saying you're a salmon? He makes fountain pens sound way more interesting than you may think. 
Yes. So we had the same teacher for a year and I joined on the violin, but um, Brad also plays the viola. And so I'd had teachers from various Suzuki institutes and things be like, you would be really good at the viola. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. When I started with Brad, he asked me if I would want to try adding viola in, like learning the clef and learning the instrument. The idea was that I would do 15 minutes of my lesson on viola and the other 45 on violin. And I was like, sure, why not? And the transition in how it went from 15 on viola to 30 on viola to 45 on viola oh dramatic like once i got the cleft down and i started learning the pieces i was totally hooked so violists read alto clef, which is different than treble and bass, which you may be more used to seeing. Alto clef is really designed to accommodate this particular range that the viola sits in really well, so that they don't have to read ledger lines, which are the lines that go above or below the staff, which can be cumbersome to read. I know trombonists also use the clef sometimes, but it's primarily the viola clef. It looks like a B. It sits in the middle of the staff. And the violists also read treble clef too. Do you read treble clef, but we should not go as high as you do because it does not sound good. <laughs> Viola's high range, it's not a pretty thing, no matter how good you are at the viola. Yeah, and that's not really your guys' fault. It's really the fault of the proportions of the instrument. And I'm, I'm really sorry to derail your story of your life. <laughs> but just a slight education on string instrument proportions. The violin has a standardized proportion set. And every instrument, unless someone gets a little bit experimental, every violin is basically the same proportions that were set by the master violin luthiers, like Stradivarius or Guarneri. With cellos, there's some wiggle room, but they're all within the same ballpark. But with a viola, that's completely uncharted territory because unfortunately, the viola would have to be much larger because of their range and therefore pretty impractical when it comes to the actual execution of performing. And so you see a wide range of measurements when it comes to violas. Something more average would be about 15 and a half inches in length and a beast of a viola would be around 17 inches. Generally speaking, you're going to get a more luscious sound out of a larger instrument, but it's not very practical for the performer, and it could even cause injury if it's too large for a performer's hand. So makers have had to get really creative in creating A, an instrument that sounds beautiful, and B, one that is ergonomic for the violist, which is really difficult to accomplish. Yeah, and as a result, like the viola has a very unique sound mm -hmm. that I love, which is why most violas play viola. It's pretty great. So yeah, so I switched to viola really quickly. I fell in love with it. And music was never like my primary hobby. Like I had other things, like I was super into theater and writing. I was super into creative writing as well, knitting. And that all changed when I went to a little place called Stringwood. So when I was 13, had my first year at Stringwood. It was the first time I really played in a quartet. We played Beethoven. And it was challenging for me being away from home. I was really homesick most of the time. But that was the first time music was just framed in a completely different way for me. It was this thing that wasn't just the Suzuki books. It was something that there's like so much more music. Like I heard Shostakovich for the first time and I was in love. I was like, this is the coolest sound. I've never heard anything like this before. Yeah. And I came home from Stringwood with a list of quartets I wanted my dad to buy. I got Mendelssohn quartets, Dvorak, Beethoven, Shostakovich. I just was like, there's this whole new world of music to listen to. Mm -hmm. And so I started ACMS the following school year. And Artaria Chamber Music School, that is. Oh my goodness. Yes, I forgot. Not everyone knows exactly <laughs> what my brain is thinking all the time. Um, yes, Artaria Chamber Music School. And it was so much fun. I actually did two quartets. That's my very first year because one of the violists had to drop. You were clutch back then? I was clutch back then. I didn't know that, Alexandra. I think about it. I did two quartets my first year. They were both Nancy's groups. I'm just baffled. It was so much fun. But anyway, so I really got the chamber music bug hard. And I went to Stringwood the following year, and I got more comfortable with being away from my home. And I made more friends. Some of my best friends I met at Stringwood that I still regularly talk to. So yeah, it really impacted my life. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> Actually, Matt Lammers was in a quartet called the Malik Quartet, and they were this really good quartet. They won competitions, and we looked up to them. We were like, oh my gosh, they are so good. I hope we can sound that good someday. So my friends and I, we didn't set out to necessarily like win competitions, but we were like, let's get to that level. Like, this is what we can aspire to be. And so that eventually led to the Luna Quartet, which is my group of my best friends. Had such a fun time. We played for two years together. We did competitions, but we just had so much fun playing together. So your success with the Luna Quartet really inspired you to consider classical music as a profession. Yeah. So basically, after doing ACMS, a lot of my friends were in Minnesota Youth Symphonies. And I hadn't been in a full orchestra in a really long time. I decided to audition. And so then I just was open to this even bigger world of symphonic music. First piece I played in Minnesota Youth Symphonies was Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, which is to this day one of my all-time favorite pieces. Nothing fills 16-year-old teenage angst better than Rachmaninoff. That opened a whole new world. And I was like, gosh, I have to be part of this. I could not get enough. And so in high school, I decided to get really serious with music. And I auditioned for music school. I eventually decided to go to Oberlin Conservatory where I studied with Peter Slowick who is one of the greatest teachers and while I was at conservatory I learned a lot but I also if I may add music school and conservatory life is very unique the environment that I experienced was very intense and some people really thrive in that and some people really suffer in that environment. And I think overall, it's a really difficult topic to address because it is so different for so many people. We can certainly go into more depth about our own individual experiences in music school, but I would say regardless of the number of students that thrived or suffered in that environment, every school is different, every student body is different, Every administration is different, but I believe it should be the institution's number one objective to have every student feel comfortable and safe learning music and getting the best education provided by the faculty at the conservatory or music school. Yeah. So when I was at Oberlin, I fell into a lot of mental health issues, which we will be getting into more later. And I had this need to finish school at Oberlin. I was determined to get the degree. I thought it was me and it wasn't a music career wasn't the right fit for me. I thought that if I just kept on working hard enough, I would be back on the same path I had originally envisioned for myself, which was to go to school and then to grad school and to find a professional string quartet. In the middle of my junior year, I realized that a career in music did not align with a lot of the career values I had set for myself. Junior year is when people start really asking like what your grad school plans are, and people would ask me what I was thinking, and I'd give them like the usual answers that like maybe a past version of myself had considered. But in my heart, I was like, I don't want to do that. That's not where I'm at right now. And so I decided that I wanted a career with more more stability, more work-life balance, something that really directly helped people that was really the big thing for me mm -hmm. the 2016 election had just happened oh, that's, yep. i just had this moment of in the grand scheme of things am i doing something that will impact people in the way i am best equipped to impact people and for me that wasn't music right and so obviously music's still a humongous part of my life yeah and i value my conservatory education very much i learned a lot about myself as a musician as a person but i left overland with the intention of spending some time figuring out what those next steps were for for me. And so I started off at my retail job at Lane Bryant that I mentioned earlier with a boss that called people Twits. And I eventually decided I wanted something different. I applied for healthcare receptionist jobs and I got to work at one of my favorite organizations. I got a job at the Emily program, which is a center that specializes in eating disorder treatment. The Emily program is fantastic for many, many reasons. They treat their employees with respect and they do amazing things for people. And I'm glad to work there. Working there really helped me figure out a lot about myself. And so I've been there for the past year and a half. It really solidified something I suspected in myself, which was that I wanted to be a therapist. So now I am working towards my master's degree in counseling psychology so that I can become a therapist. And it's... I mean, as much as we need music in our lives, we need therapists in our lives too. Mental health is such an underrepresented part of our health and our health care. I just have so much respect for anyone who decides to pursue a career as a therapist therapist or mental health worker. So I'm so excited to be your cheerleader cheering you on from the sidelines. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the thing is, music is always going to be in your life. It's not like your time at conservatory was wasted energy, wasted time or anything. It made you who you are today. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, music, I listen to music all the time. And being able to say, I don't need to have the career I originally envisioned myself in music. Being able to say that has helped my relationship heal. Totally. Yeah, that's just what was meant for me. Sometimes you can enjoy things more from a distance than actually being in the face of it. Yeah. One thing that allowed me to really heal that relationship was being invited to be assistant faculty at Stringwood. Because I went as a student five times. Like, mm -hmm. I love Stringwood. I'm a Stringwood nerd. And I'd been asking Nancy when there'd be an opening for a violist to be in the assistant faculty for a while. And Nancy called me and was like, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was honestly one of the most fun times I had since graduating college. And oh my God. Yeah. I'm so grateful. It was such a bummer that Stringwood couldn't happen this past summer. But I was devastated. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed as well. But we're planning for a Stringwood in 2021, given that the COVID pandemic has subsided enough at that point, hopefully, fingers crossed. Those dates are June 13th to July 2nd, 2021. So mark your calendars. And also we have a new Instagram account, Stringwood CMF. So you can also follow us there with a bunch of fun content to come. <laughs> anyway, is this a good time to take a break? Sure, we can take a break. Okay, excellent. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So we're about to talk about a topic that is, to me, incredibly interesting. Basically, it's because of our friendship that I've opened my eyes to this movement and also how confusing and sometimes harmful diet culture really is, as well as the repercussions of fat phobia and how pervasive both of these things are in our society. You know, there's a lot of pop culture and TV shows where there's jokes made about fat people. Like society is really fat phobic. Right. And I certainly didn't recognize that until we really started hanging out and you started to educate me on how harmful those jokes are to the fat community. And before we dissect this, I want to applaud you for your willingness and vulnerability to discuss this topic today. It's a lot to reprogram as society has taught us these quote unquote norms and the harmful way of how we view our bodies. And I applaud and thank you again for sharing your insights and experiences with us today. Thank you. Yes. So disclaimer before we kind of dive into the topic, we're going to be discussing things such as health and weight, any subjects that are kind of triggering as a result of those. So just quick content warning and some other disclaimers. I am not a clinician yet. <laughs> I hope to be, but I'm not yet. And so I'm not speaking as a professional. I'm speaking from things I have read and I'm speaking from my own personal experiences. So if you want more information on health at every size, intuitive eating, all the stuff we're going to be talking about. You can absolutely contact me. We'll have more on that later. And I can help get you to where you might need to go. But I am not a professional. This is from my view and from science that I have read. Mm -hmm. And I want to say from the get-go that... I'm only trying to begin the conversation. There may be some questions that I know the answer to already, but there's still a lot that I don't know and I'm still learning. So please forgive if there's any ignorant questions or anything that might insult anyone. It's not intentional by any means. So Alexandra, how did you get interested in health at every size and fat liberation? I think a lot of people can relate to the feeling or the knowledge. Society teaches us that being fat is evidence of laziness, indulgence, eating too much. And I internalized from a young age that being fat is one of the worst things I could be for various reasons. And I was also taught that since I was a chubbier kid growing up, I was always taller and bigger than other kids my age. I just grew up faster. And doctors would tell my mom and me that I need to lose weight even at the age of 11, I think was around the first time I was told that I need to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Like I've looked at old pictures of me and I used to think when I was 11 that I was like the fattest, ugliest person ever. And I look at those pictures and I'm like, goodness gracious, mm -hmm. I looked like a normal kid. Mm -hmm. and I was being told all these things that really messed me up. And so I was told that if you just exercise and eat, quote, better, unquote, and diet, that you can lose weight and you will be healthy. And so I dieted a few times in my life. I dieted in middle school. I dieted in high school. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder in college that I learned that actually diets don't work. 
do explain. Yes. It has been well established by science that 95% of diets fail in the long term. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just commonly accepted that dieting is a quote, good way, unquote, to lose weight and to become a version of health that the world has told us is correct. But 95% fail. And we'll get into more details later, but I was 20 years old when I was told that. I spent 20 years of my life thinking that I was a failure for not being able to stay thin or to maintained thinness Mm -hmm. once I dieted. And I was just blown away. It changed my life. And so since then, through recovery, through my job at the Emily program, through other means, I've taken a lot of time to learn about the science of what's actually true, because we're taught a lot of misinformation when it comes to food and health size. Can I, for a hot second, bring some context to your upbringing? Sure. So you were going through adolescence during the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I believe diet culture began in the 80s and all through the 90s. But by the time it got to the millennium, it was rampant. I remember there's just one diet after the other claiming to be the quickest way to your summer bod. And obviously some of these still exist, like keto diet, paleo diet, intermittent fasting. And it might work for some people. But I mean, you're telling me that the science is saying not in the long term. No. And magazines rarely help your self-esteem. But anyway, I wanted to put it back into context where you were emotionally, mentally, physically at that stage of your life. People tend to justify fat phobic ideas in the name of health. I can tell this person what I think of them because they're unhealthy and they're setting a bad example when in actuality science has shown a lot that health at every size exists. Would you mind explaining some of the terminology? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, we can do that. Because the other day you were explaining to me that calling someone obese or overweight is actually more harmful than just simply calling them fat. Yes. So something that fat liberation really talks about is that fat people experience a level of societal oppression and also acknowledges that thin privilege is real. As part of that, it talks about how we talk about fat people. The word fat has a lot of baggage. Yes. It is in its very nature simply a descriptor of a body, but we have taken it over time to include a type of person, negative ideals, negative personality types, negative looks, instead of it just being what it is. And so people have over time used words like overweight or obese to describe fat people, and it's actually more harmful because because it pathologizes fat people. So if you look at a fat person, you say they're obese, you're using a medical term that inherently says that they are unhealthy based on how it's used to describe them instead of just describing their body as it is, which is fat. Actually, the etymology of obese means that which has eaten itself fat and to eat all over, which are really false and harmful stereotypes of fat people. Wow. Right? Like people, not everyone becomes fat because of eating food. There are so many other reasons why someone is fat. And so that is just such a simplistic and harmful word. Yeah, that was something I learned recently from you, that it can be more offensive to call someone overweight or obese than just saying fat. Yeah, so um, obviously the the word fat still has a lot of baggage for people. So it can be a case-by-case basis on how people want to refer to their bodies. But the fat liberation movement aims to take the stigma out of the word fat so that we can stop using euphemisms or these medical terms that really just dehumanize fat people. It is sort of a reclaiming thing of like, this is how my body looks. It says nothing on who I am as a person, how I live my life, what I'm able to do. And so it's just trying to take out the loadedness of that word. Yeah, those terms are so ingrained in our language. I even still catch myself at times about to say the medical terms, and I realize that they may be more hurtful than kind. Yeah, well, I think people think that they're being nice by not saying fat because it's got that baggage. But if you don't want to use fat, I think plus size is a generally accepted term too, mm-hmm. because that's how like a lot of our clothing is described. I was going to say it's more a part of the fashion world. Yeah, but words like big boned, bigger, things like that, where you're trying to avoid saying fat, it can feel condescending for fat people. I feel that way. Mm-hmm. 
people say things like, oh, you're just curvy. Like, I'm a fat person and I own that about myself. It doesn't say anything about me. It just Mm -hmm. describes my body. Right. Okay. So can you tell us about health at every size? What have you learned from this movement and how can everyone benefit from their insights? Yeah. So health at every size is really transformative because it's used a lot for eating disorder treatment, but everyone can benefit from it. Health at every size essentially states that it is not about how much you weigh that determines your health. It is your behaviors that determine your health. And there's actually a lot of science that backs this up. Recently, we have discovered that we as humans, when we are born, our bodies have what they call a set point weight range, which basically means our body is going to eventually grow into a certain range that it deems healthy. And we disrupt that set point weight range when we diet or try to lose weight intentionally. Right. I remember in previous discussions with you, you telling me about how our bodies are almost smarter than we are and that our bodies will tell us what nutrients we need in order to stay alive and not starve to death. So by actually dieting, we're eliminating some of those nutrients that our body is telling us we need. And then that can cause some really weird, strange cravings. And perhaps that's why diets don't work. Right. Diet culture is the industry and the set of values that society tells us we are of more value when we are thin and sells us products to obtain said thinness. So diet culture tells us that if we're fat, it's a matter of willpower, that we just failed. So when we talk about diet culture, I wanted to specify the difference between diet culture versus diets. Can you elaborate on more of the nuances? In what ways being vegan or being a vegetarian could be indicative of diet culture and ways that it is just simply a diet and someone's choice? Yeah, so I think diet culture, sometimes people use the term diet as like food you eat, end of sentence. And then there's diet in terms of if you follow this diet, you will lose weight and be healthier. There's kind of a double-sided meaning to diet. And so, yeah, people choose to be vegetarian and vegan and they can absolutely eat intuitively and sustain that. When it becomes part of diet culture or more problematic in how you view food, because it's not to say that veganism in and of itself, it can just be a normal thing, but it can also be a symptom of diet culture. I think plant-based products have become a really popular trend in diet culture lately. So a good way to know if this is sustainable is that if you feel deprived of foods, if you miss certain foods, if it feels restricted, to you, that would be an example of it not being something that you can sustain in the long term. If you are choosing to be vegetarian or vegan because a lot of people do it for environmental reasons or people have allergies, if it's something that it's not because the food is inherently bad in your mind, if it's just because you don't feel the need to eat meat, like if you just don't like the way meat tastes or things like that, that's sustainable. You're not going to miss it when you don't eat it. Thanks for that clarification. The thing is, we don't really really have control the way diet culture tells us we do. Our bodies, like you said, are designed to keep us alive at all costs. And so when we diet, when we intentionally lose weight, especially rapidly, it triggers stress responses in our body. It makes your body think that you're in danger, that you are starving. And so as a result, it will slow your metabolism and it will do everything it can to conserve energy. Yeah, to conserve energy and also to get back to your set point weight. Mm-hmm. And so that's why diets disrupt that set point weight, because generally, once you finish your diet, your body's going to send messages to re-up your weight. And often, because of the slowed metabolism and because your body's sort of, you're sort of breaking a certain level of trust with your body, so your body will actually raise your set point weight range. Just in case it happens again and you're starving, it's basically like a preventative measure to keep you safe. That is how your body experiences intentional weight loss. I see. There actually was an experiment in Minnesota years ago. These were all male subjects, but they wanted to test and see how their bodies and how they experienced hunger if they were to be in like a war setting. So what they essentially did was they put these men on a heavily restricted diet and they noticed that these men became obsessed with food and were obsessed about their body. All they could think about was food because they were restricting themselves. And as soon as the experimenters said, okay, you don't have to restrict, they ate so much. There was more binging. They just ate a lot more food and they actually gained more 
weight than they had been at the original point. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, once their body kind of went back to normal, they went back to their set point weight range. One thing that helped me in recovery was reframing food as a way of regaining my body's trust into me. Because with my eating disorder, I had a cycle of restriction and binging. And because diets tend to lead to that, because when you are eating less food than your body needs to sustain itself, your body's going to start sending signals to your brain that say, you need to eat a lot of food now. Mm-hmm. So that's why when we say it's not a matter of willpower, it's because your body is actually trying to get the message to what it needs to be okay. It's kind of miraculous how intelligent our bodies are in telling us what nutrients we need. It's so specific, you know, it's like when I start craving vegetables, it's because I haven't been eating enough vegetables in my diet. And the opposite is true for me eating too many vegetables and I start craving fats and carbs. I think we're certainly products of our generation in dealing with diet culture. And I am flummoxed why we're not taught to listen to our body and our body's needs for nutrients because that changes over the course of our lifetime. I can't imagine what that must have been like going through your eating disorder during your adolescence. Yeah, recovery presents its own challenges because if you are using symptoms in a way that people with eating disorders do for a long time, your body stops giving you signals. Like if your body's constantly telling you it's hungry, you're not feeding it, it's eventually just going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to use my energy elsewhere. I don't have time. You're not going to listen to me. I'm not going to give you the information you need. And so it disrupts that intuition that says, this is the nutrients I'm needing right now. This is, you need to eat. I'm hungry. And so something I experienced in recovery was only experiencing hunger when I was ravenous. And that's because my sense of what fullness and hunger was, was very skewed as a result of my eating behaviors. And so part of recovery for eating disorders specifically, and I think to extent anyone who has really only relied on external hunger cues, is that you're retraining your body to give you that information. So eating reg three meals a day is part of that. Like giving that your body that information that you are going to be reliable is a big part of that too. And so these are things that are part of a thing called intuitive eating. So those hunger cues that we talked about, those messages that your brain gives you for certain foods that you're Mm -hmm. craving, Mm -hmm. that's all part of intuitive eating, which supports a mentality that all foods fit. And yes, that includes sugar, that includes dessert, the junk foods that people might deem as bad. They all fit into some capacity. Because when we allow ourselves to eat any food, we take away food's power over us. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yes. So like when I was in recovery, I noticed when I was listening to my body more, I at first was drawn more to the foods that I had previously not really let myself eat, which is why intuitive eating encourages a dessert every day. Because it gets to the point where when you have that regularly and you don't have the thought of like, I don't know what I'm going to get to eat this again, so I better eat a lot of it. You don't obsess over it. And so as a result, for a while I was eating dessert every day. And now I have days where I completely forget about it because I'm not thinking about how important dessert is to me. That's so great, Alexandra. Yeah. So it's like, because I think some people when they hear intuitive eating, they think, well, aren't people just going to eat Twinkies every day for the rest of their lives in fast food? And the answer is no, because maybe at first, if you've put that mentality of I cannot eat this food because it is bad. You might have a reaction to that because people have put this stigma on the food. But even if you eat Twinkies every day, your body's going to get sick of it. And it's going to tell you, hey, can we eat something else? Yeah, sometimes people just have this black or white mentality about food, which is how I also feel like society looks at fat people compared to thin people. Without any previous knowledge, someone could be watching a fat person eating a Twinkie and think, well, they're just not helping themselves, and then just judge them for that rather than understand maybe they're practicing intuitive eating and this is actually what's best for them. And the same could be said for thin people who are eating a kale salad, calling it rabbit food or something like that. Yeah, so that leads to another point with intuitive eating and health at every size, which is you don't know someone's health by looking at them. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, people don't have to prove their health to you. I think that's one thing sometimes for a fat microaggression I've gotten before is when like my friends were like, oh, this person's fat and they look really gross. And I said, well, I'm fat. What do you think about me? And then they said, well, you exercise and you think about your health. So it's different. And it's like, I don't. Why do fat people need to prove that to you? 
Right. For it to be okay that you are the weight that you are. Yes. When it comes to talking about food and bodies and weight, like really what health at every size encourages is that since you cannot know someone's health by looking at them and people don't owe the responsibility of proving their health to you, you should not comment on people's bodies. End of sentence. Even if it's well-intended, it's better to just not comment on people's bodies because you don't know where they are with their body. People inherently assume if you've lost weight, it's a good thing, right? Right. And you don't know what that weight loss was due to. Mm -hmm. And so by saying, do you look great? You lost weight. You're first reiterating fat phobic ideals. And also you're making assumptions about the person's intent. And for people who are suffering from anorexia or bulimia, that's even worse because you're confirming that their eating disorder is valid. Yeah. Another facet of that is you have to assume that people are feeding themselves in the way that is best for them. There is an idea that we're helping people by saying, are you sure you really want that? Or why don't you get a salad instead? But really that's just passing judgment. It's sort of like mind your own business, but like in a thoughtful way. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I learned in recovery that changed my view completely about health is that there was a study done about lifespans and different factors that contributed to health. And so they looked at people who are in a normal range, and I'm using this with quote patients, medically normal, medically overweight, and medically obese. They took lifespans based on whether the person exercised regularly, ate vegetables regularly, drank moderately or lightly, and didn't smoke. And if a person possessed all four of those qualities, their life expectancy or their lifespan was the same as anyone regardless of weight. It is Mm -hmm. when you introduce the factors like smoking and drinking heavily, that weight becomes a factor in your lifespan. And that was just life-changing for me because someone told me all the time, like, fat people die sooner. I think that really puts things into perspective about what health is. It's about what you do and not about what you weigh. Right. By the way, all the studies that Alexandra is mentioning today, we will have those resources available on our Facebook and Instagram accounts. So if you want to do more research on what she is specifically speaking about, there will be the resources available for you. Yes, I have books and articles and all this kind of stuff you might want if you want to learn more. So... So we talked a lot about health at every size, and we talked a lot about intuitive eating. So if the science backs these ideas up, why is there still diet culture? My only thought could possibly be that it's a marketing and business strategy. That is part of it. Actually, fat phobia, as we know it, even has racial origins. Right. I've learned this recently. So Sabrina Strings wrote a book called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. You know, I think we're taught when we learn, like, we look at, like, Renaissance art, we're, like, taught in school that like fat people were considered beautiful because it was a sign of wealth way back when. But when we got to more modern centuries, specifically, I think you look at places where people were taken and enslaved. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the trend became to idealize thinness because it became a way of distinguishing white versus fat bodies and fatness became correlated with animalistic attitudes towards food because black people were seen as less than human. Jesus, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. And white people, especially in America, Protestantism really advocated for temperance and moderation. And so that's why thinness became this ideal for white people to distinguish themselves from black people because black (sighs) people were these animals Animals. indulged in food and became fat oh that is so messed up so the origins of fat phobia weren't even for health so another reason why diet culture still exists despite the science refuting this is because diet culture makes us profitable weight loss industry which includes weight loss surgeries weight loss products supplement shakes tummy teas organizations like weight watchers jenny craig things like that is a 72 billion dollar industry they made 72 billion dollars in 20 Mm-hmm. Because if we're constantly told that we need fixing and they have these products to fix us, they're going to make money from it. Right. And they can advertise it as a quick, easy fix if you subscribe to them for $20 a month or something along those lines. Right. And because diets don't work, they continue to profit off of us because diet culture tells us it's our fault and it's not the product's fault. And actually, as I've discussed, the science refutes that. I mean, maybe some people have benefited from these programs and that's great, but 
it kind of seems like a scam to me. It's like they're telling us that there's something wrong when we're just minding our own business. Well, and if thinness was the epitome of health, our bodies would be attuned to that and try to obtain that as best they could, right? It wouldn't have these measures. Because diet culture perpetuates the rhetoric that we have control over our bodies, that's how it's able to sell products. If there was a diet that actually worked, diet culture wouldn't really exist because we would all just use that. It really relies on us trying different things and it relies on us constantly thinking that we are failures for not being smaller. Right. And I want to take a moment to reiterate, you have to figure out your own health. You have to figure out your own body and how your body reacts to different foods and reacts to different kinds of training. So there's no one solution fits all. We all have to figure this out over our lifetime. And I think what's really, really toxic about the way that diet culture targets us in the media is that they target it as if there's one look fits all. And that is simply untrue. Right. And so if you really want to stick it to the man, eat intuitively, then it's sustainable. You can do it long term. That's the great thing about intuitive eating. Like diets, it's hard to do those for more than like a year, probably even less. And with intuitive eating, because you're listening to your body and your body's providing that information to you, you can do that for the rest of your life. Easy peasy. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates long term healthy living. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you're just you're not obsessing. You've talked about how people have different needs. One thing that I think could help with that is that if you have the resources and are able to meet with a registered dietitian, not a nutritionist, nutritionists do not have to get training. Dietitians get master's degrees. Thank you for that clarification. There is a difference, but I've worked with a dietitian who specifically is health at every size and supports intuitive eating. Not all dietitians do that, but that's a great way to work with what your body needs and to meet with that. Because like I said, before we started talking about this, you know, I'm not a clinician, so I don't know what's going to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. But intuitive eating encapsulates finding solutions for everyone. Right. As opposed to these diet industries that say my way or the highway. I also just want to say, in addition to mental health workers, I also feel like dietitians are sorely needed in the medical field. Another thing about seeing a registered dietitian is that since their whole degree is in nutrition, they have a lot more information. I think we usually see medical doctors as the authorities for nutrition, but nutrition is a small unit in medical school for them. And dietitians have more updated information on nutrition. So you're seeing someone with more information and more specialization. I dream of a world where health at every size becomes the government standard for health education in schools. That's my dream that our kids are never taught diet culture. They are only taught health at every size. I think that would be transformative. Right. Now that we learned a lot about the dangers of fat phobia, how can we unlearn that as a society, as a culture, on an individual level, and on a global scale? A huge part of it, and something that's helped me personally, is following a bunch of fat bloggers on social media. I have a lot of people in my newsfeed that normalize fat bodies in a dignified manner. I think so often media portrays fatness and fat people in such a crude way that is so dehumanizing. And so getting to normalize seeing fat people in a way that is not dehumanizing is really helpful in helping unlearn your implicit fat phobia. Mm -hmm. And I can provide some bloggers and accounts that I really love. I would love that. Yeah. To incorporate if anyone who's listening wants to incorporate that more into their social media. I think that's a really easy and powerful way of doing that. I mentioned these examples of how fat people have to navigate the world differently than thin people. But I also just want to say you don't have to walk on eggshells around fat people, but listen to your fat friends, if they say they're uncomfortable, take that seriously. I think just creating an environment or relationship with someone that they feel that they can speak about these things comfortably. Like we have that kind of friendship where I can say like, sometimes it's hard for me to say, I don't really feel comfortable sitting in this restaurant chair, but like, you know, we have a friendship where I feel like I can talk about like, you know, this isn't going to quite work for my body. Well, and I must admit from my end, you make it very easy. (laughs) I do. I make it known. (laughs) But like, I don't, I, you know, I've had friends where I feel like embarrassing that kind of thing. So, you know, just like it's a mindfulness. Being mindful, being respectful, treating everyone like they are you, that you could be them. Yeah, that's a great way engaging with people about that or just trying to normalize it in your everyday life. Another thing is acknowledging fat phobic media content. One thing that is very triggering for fat people are fat suits that actors wear because they're more often than not very caricature like. 
right and not realistic and exist to be dehumanizing mm-hmm. and to be mean about fatness so when you see something in media that makes you go oh when it comes to fatness think about where that's coming from and why you feel that way when <laughs> when i saw avengers endgame in the theaters and they revealed fat thor the whole theater went oh like Ew. no really yeah, the whole theater and i went like on opening weekend so there was a full theater and that was just a moment of like oh wow (laughs) yeah because it was done in such a dehumanizing and not friendly way. And we could get more into like specific pop culture instances. That's just one example. But, of course. Like, Parks and Rec has another really fat phobic problem. And so does New Girl. A lot of sin. Yeah. That's really difficult trying to escape that from pop culture. Yeah. I mean, like there, I remember I'd see articles on magazines of like Jessica Simpson gained weight. Oh my God. And like, it was a huge deal. Media loves to make a spectacle of celebrities. And this is in terms of weight gain like Jessica Simpson and also weight loss. Like recently, lots of news stories have been about Adele losing weight. People have been like, oh, good for her. And being like, wow, I'm glad she's finally taking care of herself. That affirms a lot of harmful fat stereotypes, you know, because as I have said, and will probably say many times, fat is not an inherently bad thing. And so when we vilify weight gain, and we praise weight loss, we're just affirming that fat is bad, which it's not. Rebel Wilson's another one that just came up. Rebel Wilson just announced that she lost a lot of weight and has been posting pictures and so people are like good for her and all this stuff and like sure she worked really hard to lose weight that was a direct effort but the amount of response it's not that rebel wilson lost weight it's that the world's obsessed with it yes so just for my knowledge when you see someone like rebel wilson go public and say they lost a lot of weight what is the correct response or how should someone support rebel wilson and also be a fat ally yeah that is tricky because it's difficult to separate that like this is something she's proud of but also it perpetuates a lot of fat phobia in the process of like Mm -hmm. my body was not good then and it is good now so it's so that's a hard thing to split because we have to trust that people are doing what they would need to do for their bodies and acknowledge that she's doing what she feels is best for her body i know i sprung that kind of hard question on you no that's a tough question it's a good Um, thing to talk about how do we handle those but my my reaction like why can't we simultaneously love everybody at their current weight like why do we have to put a value judgment on something can't we applaud her for being who she was when she was heavier as much as she is when she is now why is there a value on it yeah i know i think that's a really great way of putting it of like why do we care i guess in a way like why is this okay she made this choice to change her body in this way let's just leave it be let's not say good or bad things it's just just let rebel wilson exist yeah like why do we need to worry about it why do we care people's bodies change they change for many reasons you know if we just like left weight gain alone like just like oh they gained weight and like that means nothing celebrities i think are the way we see the media treat celebrities in regards to changing bodies is like really indicative of like where diet culture is so indeed so who are some pioneers that are trying to break this norm well i think there are some really great books and movies and tv shows that are created by fat people that talk about fatness in a much more humanizing way off the top of my head shrill is a fantastic tv show dumplin's a great movie i can give a list of things that i've really enjoyed as a fat person watching that have been healing and the reason why i say like created by fat people is because just because an actor is fat does not mean their content is fat friendly just because an actor is of a is a person of color does not mean the material isn't racist. You know, like when people of color have to play stereotypes in media. Rebel Wilson has had to play a lot of stereotypes. Isn't it romantic is not one of those stereotypes. That's actually a better use of a fat person. One thing to think about too, to like unlearn implicit fat phobia is think about how things are made without fat people in mind. Like one thing that you've kind of learned from being friends with me is that if we're like at a restaurant or at a place where we need to be seated, you ask me or like give me the seat option that is going to be most comfortable for my body because yes there are a lot of chairs that poke into my hips sometimes boots are mm-hmm. too tight to the table and i'm squished you know so or like when we went to a play you got an end seat for me mm-hmm. because 
that's a concern of mine is something that I have to navigate as a fat person. So that's especially where like thin privilege comes into play. But thinking about how it's different for a fat person to navigate something that might be easy for a thin person that mm-hmm. they don't have to think about that fat people do. Mm-hmm. Airplanes can be traumatizing for fat people based on like things that have happened on planes in response to sitting next to fat people. And when I was thin, I didn't think twice about getting on a plane. Mm-hmm. But as a fat person, I think about it all the time mindfulness in what you do and how you approach people and really fat people just want dignity and respect and to not be only seen for their body absolutely alexandra thank you so much for your vulnerability again in discussing this really sensitive topic and i hope more people will begin to reconsider how they view fat people and hopefully adopt health at every size for themselves as a way of living their life. And in addition to all of Alexandra's resources, there's also a really good episode on stuff you should know about anti-diet culture. So I recommend that podcast. I love Josh and Chuck. So if you're looking for another episode to listen to anti-diet culture, there's one for you. So Alexandra, where can my listeners learn more about you? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at a Sophocles. So that's a and then my last name, S-O-P-H-O-C-L-E-U-S, Sophocles. And um, if you have any questions, I like to post, I tend to share a lot of fat liberation and health at every size content on my Instagram, especially my stories. There's a lot of educational pieces there that you can learn from. If you have questions about anything regarding like finding a provider that works for you or questions about how to learn more, you can shoot me a message. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. And then Patty, you and I can work out a, like a list of resources for learning more as well. Absolutely. We will definitely create a resource for our listeners to find more information about fat phobia, health at every size, intuitive eating, and body positivity. Sounds like a plan. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and leave, hopefully, a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps this podcast reach more people, which is kind of my whole point of creating this thing to begin with, is to get people to know the musicians and their interests outside of music. And, you know, I love reading the comments, and I would love to see some more in the future. You can also give feedback at our email hideinmusicstand at gmail.com if there's something you'd like to suggest or say hello. Sharing with your friends and family is a free way to support this podcast and if you'd like you may also visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideinmusicstand. It takes a lot of work to edit each episode and I'm so grateful for my current Patreon members but we would always love more to join the family. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all at hideinmusicstand to access more content. There's also a Spotify playlist available with all the pieces we discussed on the show. You can find it in the description of each episode and this list is getting pretty beefy so really it's becoming kind of maybe a great road trip playlist anyway thank you for being on the show alexandra thank you for your essence thank you for your beautiful insights into fat phobia dismantling that dismantling diet culture and let's try to keep intuitive eating and health at every size the new fad in 2020 thank you so much for having me this has been great And thank you, listeners, for listening, because that's what you do. (laughs) For using your ears. (laughs) Okay, that's it. Use your wallets. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you only feel so inclined, that would be amazing. But thank you. (laughs) Okay, the episode is done now. (laughs) Say bye, sushi. Because you know me when I get excited. And you know me when I get excited. Yes. <laughs> and it becomes it becomes episodes of hiding behind the music stand. So I'm studying to become my mat to get Can I cough for a second? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a cough? Yes. Yes, that was a cough. Oh, <laughs> uh, if you hadn't done the thing earlier, that definitely would have been the last. <laughs> I know people want to hear that. It still might be there. Well, because I thought it was just going to be like a. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
it or something. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I do it with full gusto. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, how could I have expected anything less? <laughs> oh, my eyes twitching. Okay. <laughs> this is very professional. This what we do. <laughs> Alexandra. Yes. How can we- <laughs> I'm so sorry. Why am I the worst? <laughs> yes. 